Hey, hey, this is Takara, and you are listening to A Letter to My Sister podcast. You are in the right place if you are raised to be a strong, independent woman who didn't have to depend on anybody for anything, but then you realize there were some lessons that you didn't quite get as you were going along the way. We often go through life the best way that we know how, and we don't even realize that there's a better way. So in here, there will be some raw and real conversations surrounding life lessons about the things that we wish that we had known, maybe about self, love, money, and even our careers. So if you're new here, be sure to subscribe to the podcast, and I would love for you to leave a rating and review as well. So now that we've got all that out the way, let's chat, sis. Hey sis, today we are still on relationships. That is showing others how to treat you right the first time. But we're going to take this to a whole nother level today. This is a very interesting topic because sometimes it's not us. It's the society that we've been raised in. It's the culture that we've been raised in for why it is that we do some of the things that we do and it's very systemic in nature. So listen to this interview that I do with Sharani so she can blow the lid off this thing and show you an entirely different way to look at relationships. Listen up. Sharani, welcome to A Letter to My Sister podcast. I am so excited to have you here today because you are going to give us a different spin on relationships. And this is about supremacy and relationships. So listen, we're just going to hop right in and I'm going to let you break this whole thing down for us because I know somebody is probably like, what? Yes. Well, thank you so much for inviting me to be here with you and share with your listeners about how supremacy shows up in our relationships. Because, you know, a lot of times we hear about supremacy and supremacy culture, and we think it's like, oh, it's the systemic racism, it's all the injustice, it's all of our people, you know, constantly being oppressed, right? That's what we think. Mm -hmm. What we don't realize is that we do this to ourselves and to each other in our relationships. And this is because we have internalized that supremacy that's out there. We have internalized it inside of ourselves. And that is what we then use as a template or framework to interact in every single relationship with. So let's say, for example, and this happens all the time. I'll just use myself as an example, okay? Like there was a time where my husband, we were dating at the time, but he could do nothing right. And the reason he could do nothing right is because he could never do anything the way I wanted it to be done. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so it would become conflict, right? And so in that, it's that I think my way is the right way and he's not doing it right. And now I have a reason to feel like I'm better than him. Right. Yes. Slighted. Mm -hmm. Yes. And then it shows (laughs) up because then he feels resentful and doesn't want to do the thing. Yeah. That is very interesting. When, When you were saying that, the first thing that came to my mind is that when we want to be in a relationship with someone, 
but they don't want to be in a relationship with us. And so then we try to play all of these games to get them to want to be in a relationship with us. Or as some people do, what I call it is some women typically kind of spill everything out and say, this is what I'm looking for. And so a man will say, oh, well, let me turn into that. But it's manipulation. You basically manipulated that woman into thinking you are exactly who she was looking for when you're the furthest from it. Yes. And it's so funny. I early on in my work. So my background, a little bit about that is I am trained as a therapist and relationships has been my area of specialty. Now I am shifting into transitioning out of therapy and more into the coaching and the online space. And my entire first part of my private practice was women who exactly like what you were just saying, right? They either the guy would present themselves as someone they're not, or she would present herself as someone they're not. And that phase, like you can only put up that act for so long, right? Before that act comes crashing down and people's true colors show. And then here we go again, feeling some kind of way, because then we think that like they false advertised or they think that we false advertise, right? Making ourselves to be someone that we're not. And then the push pull battle becomes because now we want them to be who we want them to be. And mm-hmm. they want us to be who we, who they want us to be. And therein lies the challenge. And quite frankly, the conflict that we experience in pretty much all of our relationships. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely a push and pull for sure. What was what came to mind? So many things are coming to mind as you're talking about this because I was like, it's so true. And oh, so I was, I get all my stuff on social, all my motivation from social media. (laughs) And so what I noticed that one guy said is we tend to get upset when we find out that someone is not who they presented themselves to be. And so we'll say they wasted our time and I'm so mad because they wasted our time. But he's like, but to be honest, it's not that they wasted your time. He said they stole your time because they create, they presented themselves in a way that that was completely false in which you probably would not have went for in the first place, he said. But at the same time, you have to take on some responsibility in that as well, because there was something that you saw. There's always something that you see in which you kind of go against yourself and say, okay, something is off, but I don't see it. I don't, I don't think that's what it is. So then I'm going to keep going. So he was like, there's both parties have some responsibility to take, but at the end of the day, there is someone who stole your time, not wasted your time. Yeah. And you said so many juicy things in there. And I would love for us to break some of that down piece by piece. Let's go. Let's go. Okay. So first of all, you talked about that manipulation factor, right? Like I, I have this thing that I like to say, which is people pleasing is manipulation. Um, and when you think about it, when you're trying to put on this certain face or this certain act, like, oh, I love all these things. Right. But then it turns out you really don't. And again, I did this early on with my husband. When we first moved in, I wanted to be the perfect 
you know, live-in girlfriend at that time, but I wanted to be the perfect live-in, you know, perfect partner. And so I used to do the dishes and fold his laundry and all this stuff that I absolutely hate doing. (laughs) Hate, hate, hate with a passion, right? But I was doing it because I wanted him to think of me as the perfect partner. And I wanted him, I I didn't want to lose him, right? Like I didn't want Mm -hmm. him to, to break up with me or whatever, because I wasn't the perfect partner. And so I did all of these things. And when I stopped doing them, he got really upset. He's like, why aren't you folding my laundry like you used to, you know, because I was doing the whole little KonMari method where everything looks so beautiful and perfect inside the drawers. Oh, wow. You're doing a lot. (laughs) It was like beautifully (laughs) lined up in there. I mean, I and I hate laundry. I hate dishes. I hate all those things. But that is what was driving me. And I didn't realize it at the time, but I really was trying to please him, right? Like in a way, people pleasing him so that he would stay with me so that he would think I'm the perfect partner and then stay with me. And Mm -hmm. then in the whole time, though, I'm trying to manipulate him because I'm giving him an image of who I am not. And so that's what ends up happening when we do that, when we engage in that practice. And then you mentioned, um, gosh, there was something else that you mentioned and now it has escaped my mind because I got so fired up about the, <laughs> the manipulation piece and how we want others to perceive us a certain way, you know, and really mm-hmm. it's because we feel that there's something lacking inside of us. Again, a result of internalized supremacy because supremacy tells us, especially if we're black, brown or Asian people, that we don't amount to anything. We, you know, are useless. We're worthless, blah, 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 all the things. Right. And so we have this deep seated belief within us that we're not good enough or that we're not worthy or that we're not valuable. And so we have to prove that we are worthy, valuable, and lovable. Mm -hmm. And so we do stupid things like laundry and dishes and cleaning when we hate doing laundry and dishes and cleaning just because we want to manipulate someone into loving us and not leaving us. Yeah. Ooh, Ooh, that's so good because, okay, see if I can get my thoughts together. (laughs) So the other, this is also what comes to mind is that it's almost like, no, it's not almost we're selfish. (laughs) (laughs) because it's it's like if you care about this person as much as you say that you do why would you want them to be in a relationship with you if you know you're not what they're looking for because it's like at the end of the day you also have a responsibility for the other person and so If they said, like the example that you gave, if they said, I want a woman that loves to do all those household things, I can do that. And then you're miserable. And so now you've like flipped yourself. So now you're miserable because you're trying to make them happy, but you know, you're not this person. So like, do you plan to all of a sudden like to do these things? Do you plan to morph into this? Like what is happening here? Yeah, well, I love the the distinction you made between them outright saying, like, I want the wife or the partner who is going to fold the laundry and do the dishes and clean the house and make sure everything looks nice, right? Like, there's a difference between someone actually saying that and you bending yourself into a pretzel to fit that mold and 
what I did, which was he never said any of those things to me. Right. But mm-hmm. in my head, that is what I believe that a perfect partner should do yeah. or would do. And so I took it upon myself to act in those ways. And of course you make someone's drawers look really nice when they're just used to throwing everything in their laundry <laughs> in the drawers. And all of a sudden they literally got KonMari style, like everything's beautifully laid out in there. It's so picture perfect. Of course they're going to want that more often. Right. And absolutely. I was starting to feel miserable as a result of it. And, um, I don't remember what your original question was, but that's what I got for you. (laughs) So where does this, so where do you believe this comes from? Because in one sense, depending on the type of family structure that you grew up in, I could see how you would say, well, this is what, this is what I saw in my household. Or if you didn't see, so in my instance, I was married and I was also trying to be the perfect wife and do all the things, basically acting like the traditional housewife per se. So making sure that I had the house clean and the meals cooked and and all of that, stressing myself out because at that time I was working 12 hour days as a nurse. So like I'm trying to you know, meal plan and meal prep. And then my God, my, my husband at the time, he, he didn't do leftovers. Oh. So, <laughs> so now I'm, so what I'm trying to do, because I'm trying to be smart is I make two or three meals in one day and just mix them. So like, okay, if y'all want leftovers, take a piece from here, a piece from here, a piece from here and do that. And granted he could cook. So, I mean, he he could do those things, but because I felt that as a wife, that was what I, I was stressing myself out. <laughs> yes. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. And, and I remember your question this time. It was like, where does this come from? And to me, it still goes back to the way that we have internalized supremacy culture and our feelings of not being enough. And, you know, early on in my career, when I used to talk about this, I used to definitely talk about families, right? Like you just mentioned, what was modeled for you or what stories did you learn about yourself growing up? And Eventually, I started to realize, wait a minute, this isn't just a in individual families kind of thing. Like this is a larger societal thing that we have experienced that has become a part of who we are, not knowingly. And actually, now you're going to get me on a tangent about our nervous systems. Um, and I'm going to go there. Yeah, so let's what? do it because I was going to ask you anyway. So let's go. Let's go. So. <laughs> because of the ways that we have internalized this really deep seated belief that we are not good enough, that we are not valuable, that we are not worthy enough, that we have to prove ourselves, that we have to do all these things. There's multiple factors at play here. And one of them kind of goes back to survival and trauma responses and the way our nervous system responds and, and interacts uh, with those, you know, our people, persons, situations, circumstances, environments, all that good stuff. And so coming back to that um, example that we've been using, right? Like showing yourself as someone that you're really not. And then all the stuff that comes with that. Well, there's a reason that we people please or want people to like us. You know, most of the time we hear about fight or flight as trauma responses. And now more people know about freeze. So now it's fight, flight, freeze, right? But there's actually more 
responses that we have for our survival than that that researchers are continuing to study and research. And one of the ones um, that is getting more um, light, like that's getting just more awareness is fawn, F-A-W-N. And so fight, flight, freeze, fawn. And fawn is the one that's also known as tend and befriend, or it's the thing that makes it so that we want to stay a part of the clan, the tribe, the village. Like we, we want to be a part of the community. We don't want to get kicked out of our, our people, right? Like, because if you want to, um, and let me put my thoughts together for this. So like, if you're in a situation and for this, I'm going to use like a, a platonic relationship, I think. Um, and so if you're like in a friendship and you know that your friend likes a certain thing and you don't, and you have a sense or a feeling that if you don't like this thing, your friend will not want to hang out with you anymore. Like they won't want to be your friend anymore. And so you will say yes to that thing because your need for attachment, your need to be in relationship with others is actually a part of our survival. And one of the things that I learned from Dr. Gabor Mate, who does amazing, amazing work on this, is that, you know, we have, he says we have two survival needs. He says our two survival needs are attachment with others and authenticity, which in my words is our attachment with ourselves. And so if any of that is threatened, we're going to go into one of these survival responses, which might be saying or doing things that we want to, you know, don't want to do, but saying that, oh yeah, I like that. Oh yeah, I'll do that. And then feeling all grumpy and resentful about it later. Interesting. But I could see, I could see how all this comes into play because this is what we do to, especially, I think it starts as children, I would even say all these kids don't like this particular person for whatever reason. You don't see why people don't like this particular person. You're thinking about befriending this particular person, but then they're like, I know you're not about to go over there and talk to so-and-so over there. And then you quickly realize, oh my gosh, if I talk to this person, this group of people over here is not going to like me. Let me stay with the group. <laughs> exactly exactly and this is why like all of a sudden the movie mean girls comes into mind right that's what came to mind yeah <laughs> yes where where you're like gonna do whatever it is to be a part of okay and now we're gonna get deep here again because kind of thinking back to family structures right when we were taught a certain way of being, because that's what was conditioned into our parents and their parents and their parents for hundreds and thousands of years, actually. And when that's how we've been conditioned, it's what we know and it's how we know to survive. So even though there's a part of you that's like, nah, this ain't right, you know, there is still, you will do things to stay a part of the group and to stay attached with that group. And so sometimes that means you'll stay in dynamics and patterns that aren't right for you. So like in your relationships, you, oh, that gut feeling, that's what I was going to come back to earlier that I forgot. Like you'll feel that there's something off, but like, like for a lot of us, yes, yeah, something feels off, but 
we don't know any other way, or we've been told outright mm-hmm. that our feelings are wrong, or we've been told that what we see isn't really what's happening, right? There's this thing that happens. I like to call it, you know, if it looks like a duck and it walks like a duck and it quacks like a duck, it is a duck. But so often we have been told outright, if it looks like a duck and it walks like a duck and it quacks like a duck, it's a pigeon or it's a pig, (laughs) right? Like it's Mm -hmm. not, it's not a duck. And so that leads us to like, question ourselves and then stay in those relationships that might not be the most ideal situation for us, but then partially it's that like not trusting ourselves. And the other part of it is not, um, like just, that's what you knew. That's what your nervous system is kind of programmed and attuned to. And so that's where you might stay. I mean, it's like a lot of times you see people that are trying to make their lives better, but then they keep going to the same type of person, right? Like it's always the same old story, different name, different face, but the story is always the same. It's because our survival instinct is also to go back to what we know, even when we know that what we know is messed up and not right for us. Okay, so here's a question. So let's say I have a pattern of choosing, I don't know, we'll just go with the bad boy type, for instance, because, you know, they're edgy or whatever the case is. So if I know that I have a pattern of continuously choosing this type of man, but I know that they're not good for me, how then do I make the switch because I imagine now this would be part of the nervous system, right? That you were talking about. And this would maybe give me the urge to flee. I'm thinking if I come across someone who's not familiar and now it's uncomfortable and I don't know exactly how to relate to this type of person without having to do the manipulation (laughs) that I had to do for the bad boy. Well, and first of all, I want to say I know me plenty of bad boys and I know (laughs) the exact experience that you're talking about. And before I get to that, I want to say something first, which is that that bad boy, um, you know, thing when your nervous system does encounter someone who's not that yes absolutely you will go into flee and I'll tell a little story about that here in a second but the other thing is that a healthy whole individual is not going to tolerate that type of manipulation right like they're going to smell something is off they're going to sense it and they're going to take action on it they're not going to sit there and question themselves about it they're going to be like yeah, something's off. But usually what ends up happening is we run off first, you know, we flee (laughs) first. It's that flight response, right? And I remember my whole entire dating history, I dated the bad boys. I I like to say this thing that 
I had a story that men are not to be trusted, but then I chose all the untrustable men, right? All those bad boys, they were edgy and you couldn't really trust them. So of course I chose partners who reinforced that story that I had, right? Mm -hmm. And then when I started really deeply actively working on myself, um, my now husband and I, we broke up a, a couple times in our dating relationship. And at one point I was like, okay, I'm going to do something totally different. And I went out with this guy who was too nice. And the whole <laughs> time I was like, there's something wrong here. There's something off. He's too nice. Like he's boring. He's too nice. And that's because exactly what you said, my nervous system was already programmed and attuned to all of the anxiety and chaos that came with the bad boy. And so thankfully today, my husband is not the bad boy, but you know, we had, we had to do a lot of work in order to be able to get here. And it took a lot of me learning how to be comfortable in what initially feels uncomfortable because initially it can feel boring because mm -hmm. that excitement isn't there. And then we want to flee. Exactly. Like you said, we want to run, we want to flight that situation. Right. But if we can allow ourselves to stay present with that discomfort and literally just be with yourself in it, notice, Ooh, this person, I think they're too nice. And so I'm feeling uncomfortable. So I want to run away. What happens if I just stay here and let this feeling of discomfort pass? What happens if I just let it wash over me? What happens? And what usually comes to happen? is that our emotions, and I could be misquoting this, but they really only take about 90 seconds to move through us, but they get stuck when we don't let them move through. Mm -hmm. And when we don't let them move through is when we get that urge to run and actually run as opposed to if we just stayed present exactly like I just laid out every time you start to feel that discomfort. And this is in any situation, right? Like anytime you just allow yourself to stay present with it and let it pass, give it its full 90 seconds and you will start to feel Ah, okay. Okay. It's passed. And guess what? I did it. I didn't die. You know, a cougar didn't come and attack me. A saber toothed tiger didn't have me for dinner. And so I didn't die. And now I get to celebrate the fact that I didn't die and I didn't mess up this relationship. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Very true. So, well, two things came to mind when you said boring and too nice. It reminded me of this book that I just got finished listening to called Women Who Love Too Much. Oh, my favorite book. It's your favorite book. It's the book. <laughs> it is the book that set me on the deepest depths of my healing and recovery. I kid you not, that book. Really? Yes, a friend of mine recommended it to me almost 10 years ago now when I was in it. <laughs> I was so in it. <laughs> and that is the book. So tell me what you think about it. You know what? I, I, I thought it was a really good book. And I was trying to reconcile throughout the, someone recommended it when I was in one of those clubhouse rooms. And I was like, I don't think I'm one of those. I don't think I'm a woman who, it did I love too much? I don't know. Should I read this book? I don't know. So then <laughs> I finally, I, I was like, okay, let me listen to it. And I read the book and there were a lot of, of course, a lot of parts that I did not, um, that I could not 
what's the word? I'm not going to say agree that it just didn't fall in my lane, especially since a lot of it that she was talking about was like heavy on addiction and all those kinds of things. But I could see myself in other areas to say, yeah, yeah, I don't know what she was doing (laughs) right there. But it was definitely a good learning lesson because I think for me, for one of the parts and when I was going through my divorce and and all of that, just me reflecting, I was like, okay, what is it that I could have done differently or what boundaries did I, and I noticed that I did not have good boundaries, period, in my marriage. And it was because when I was dating, (laughs) my boundaries were extreme, but I didn't realize that until my therapist told me. I was like, I had very good boundaries. I was like, if someone crossed me, I I was out of there out of there and gone. And I was like, but in my marriage, I couldn't leave. So I was like, well, I guess I'm just going to have to stick this out and see what happens. She was like, well, it sounds like your boundaries were very extreme. She was like, you didn't give these people a chance to explain. I was like, for what? I saw what I needed to see. Like I'm gone. And so because I had not practiced accurate boundaries while I was dating, when I got married and take into account coming from a somewhat religious background, not wanting to get divorced, still trying to be like super wife (laughs) and all of those things, like it all compounded. And so when there were things that I disagreed with in the marriage or when things happened, instead of me saying, if this happens again, I'm out, or if this happens, this, I was like, oh, well, we don't want that to happen again, but then we wouldn't get any outside help to help us navigate. And then we would just kind of go through, or we would finally get a therapist. But by the time we got a therapist, I mean, we was a mess, <laughs> a complete mess. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. And one of the, the critiques that I do hear often about that book, cause I do recommend it to my clients a lot. And one of the big critiques I hear is that people like have a hard time with how heavy it is on addiction. Um, just like, um, uh, I think it's Pia Melody. I think it's her book. Um, no, well, I was going to say codependent no more, but that's Melody Beattie, but there's another one by Pia Melody and people are like, oh, it's like so focused on addiction and blah, blah, blah. But really when you can look at the feelings, Mm -hmm. the way that you feel, right? Like if you can look at that. And, and for me, the big thing about that book was like where it said, if you grew up in a family like X, Y, Z, seek some sort of support, right? Like seek some sort of support, like um, a 12 step program or something. Mm -hmm. And that is what, actually I am in a 12 step recovery program and that book is what took me there. And that is what has transformed my whole life is because now I can understand all of the messed up things that I did in relationships that were a result of the ways that I grew up and the way my parents grew up and on and on and on and on back through all of the generations because of the way that our nervous systems, I like to call it has been hijacked and programmed by supremacy culture. Now, would you also say, cause this was the other point that I wrote down was like the different attachment styles. So the anxious, the detached, avoidant, and all of that. 
So is that kind of mixed into with like the nervous system and all of that? Do they come into play? Do they intertwine? Yeah, you know what? I haven't actually seen the research on if those attachment styles on the nervous systems, like the research connecting those two, but I can tell you from like over here right now, intuitively, the answer is yes, like they definitely do, right? Because um, there is the anxious attachment style that's like, oh, I texted them. Why aren't they texting me back? Why aren't they texting me back? Oh my gosh, they don't like me. They don't like me. See, I knew it. They don't like me. I suck. Okay, what am I going to do? Now I'm going to blast their phone a gazillion more times and keep texting them back. Well, guess what? Now they really don't like me, right? (laughs) And then they leave me. And then I have the story of, I'm unlovable. Like it just reinforces that story. And then there's the avoidant, which not that I'm diagnosing you Takara, cause that's not what I do, <laughs> but one can say with these, um, extreme boundaries that you had, that was like the avoidant, right. Attachment style, which is like, I don't want to get too close. I don't want to get too attached. I might get hurt or someone might violate my boundaries. And so a lot of times when we see, especially men that keep you at arm's length, it is usually because they have a parent, typically their mother, who violated their boundary and was like too all consuming with Mm -hmm. them, like in some kind of way. And so they create this big walled off avoidant attachment style because they don't want to be smothered. That's the word I was looking for because they don't want to be smothered in their relationship again. And so to keep their own individuality, they will um, keep people away. And so we learn that extreme shut, you know, cut it off. And then there's the, um, like, I think the technical term for it is disorganized attachment style, which to me is a combination of both where sometimes you're feeling super anxious and then they get close and then you're like, nope, just kidding. And then you go into avoidant behavior. So to me, I like to say that that attachment type is the one that toggles between the two. And how it could relate to your nervous system. Absolutely. Like in the case of the avoidant, if someone is getting too close to me, it is going to activate my nervous system because I know this as a threat to me and my sense of self. And so if I start to feel that I'm going to push you away in the sense of the anxious person, right? So, so the person who is avoidant for them, it would be that they don't want their personhood to be smothered and, and to be disappeared into someone else. Whereas for the anxious person or the anxious attachment style for them, it's there. They didn't have the caregiving that they needed, like their needs weren't met. And so for them, the nervous system activation comes when they feel their partner isn't meeting their needs. Um, And so that's why we send the one text message. We don't hear back. We go into our stories of how much they're not into us anymore. And then we blow up their phones (laughs) until they're not into us anymore. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Right. Um, And then of course there's the secure attachment style, which we can, no matter what attachment style you have, everyone has the capacity to grow the skill. And I'm calling it a skill. I think this is the first time I've actually referred to it as a skill, but the skill of secure attachment, because the skill of secure attachment requires us to have command of our nervous system. It requires us to understand what is happening in my body. What is happening when my partner does this? How do I want to react? What do I want to say? And 
truly it is about developing, I called it like command of your nervous system, but really it's getting into relationship and partnership with your nervous system. It really is befriending your nervous system and trying to understand what is this vital part of your survival organ teaching you? Or what does it want you to know? What does it think is happening? Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, of course, I did also listen to the book Attachment. So <laughs> so I did listen to that one too. And I think for another part of that, that's coming to mind for me is I read this book. I read it this time, not listened to it. <laughs> I read this book called, is it The Emotion Code? I feel like it's called, I, I mixed two of the books up, but I believe either I, either it was the emotion code or it was the mind body code. One of these codes anyway. And what he was talking about is your body also knows a positive and the negative. And so the, the test that he gave was for you to just stand with your eyes closed and just kind of do some deep breathing for a second. And then after that, tell yourself the truth, like whatever that truth is, tell yourself a truth and observe your body to see what it does. And then after that, he said, tell your body, tell yourself a lie and observe what your body does. And the moment I told myself a lie, my body instantly swayed backwards, like, whoa, what you doing? That's not what we do here. And so I was like, oh man, I think this could also be kind of like the part of the central nervous system. Like everything is kind of, we don't realize how in tandem everything is in our body with that. So I'm not sure if you've heard of the book or heard of, I think, I think it might be the mind body code. I feel like okay. that might be the one I think okay. does it have like a blue cover or something on it. It might. Okay. <laughs> it's like, I think I can see it. Um, and I love that exercise, right? It makes me think of um, one of my mentors, Milagros Phillips. Uh, I did a lot of my really deep internalized racial trauma healing with her. And she has this exercise where she has her workshop participants um, feel the energy of peace and what that feels like in their bodies. Mm -hmm. And then she says the word racism. She's known as the race healer on Instagram and all her socials and also um, racism. And just to notice the difference between that. And it's this similar feeling of like, Ooh, right? Like you just mm -hmm. lean back, you get tight, you get constricted um, versus peace where it feels like open and warm and just cozy and comfortable. Right. So I, I love that. And yes, the body, it just made me think of what you talked about, how we get like some kind of intuition. We know something's wrong, but we don't listen to it. Right. Our body is so wise. Um, there's a book, Bessel van der Kolk called the body keeps the score. I've not actually read it. I have it. I own it. Um, <laughs> I just prefer to do trainings. So I've done like all these trainings with him. Um, and like, there's literally scientific evidence that supports how our bodies truly do know, truly do carry. And a part of what we need to do is 
get into relationship with our body, which actually brings me to my work and fierce authenticity. So my formula, as I'll call it, is that heart work plus somatic work equals a new legacy. And so in the heart work, we're getting into right relationship with ourselves and others around us. And in the somatic work, we're getting into relationship with our body. And when we do these two things, um, we create a new legacy, a legacy that does not have the seed of internalized supremacy and how bad you suck and all of that other stuff automatically implanted into you. Because imagine what this world would look like if no one believed that they were not worthy, if they were not lovable, if they were not valuable, right? And I know that at the time of this recording, we have this Ukraine situation going on. Well, let's get real about people like Putin and Trump. Like they have deeply, deeply deep seated beliefs that they are not good enough. And this is why they go do all the crazy things that they do out there in the world and try to exert that power and control. And I can go on a whole other tangent about power and control (laughs) and how we have it all upside down. Like we just have the wrong definition of power and control because power and and control doesn't mean that you um, like just usurp someone else's power and govern over them. No, what power and control truly means is that we're in right relationship with ourselves, with our bodies, and with everyone and everything around us. Oh, my, my, my. That was like a whole... (laughs) (laughs) That was a whole mic drop. And so just to kind of just to kind of bring it on in and wind it down a little bit. If we find ourselves kind of in these situations that we talked about in the very beginning. So if we find ourselves either not feeling like we're worthy just due to some inherited inherited beliefs that we have, or if we find that we are going for what's familiar instead of what's actually safe for us, or even if we find that we're manipulating people into being into relationships with us, what would be kind of like some advice or some things that you would have us to do to kind of correct our path for where we are? Yeah, well, in my upcoming book, I speak about a three-part process and I have borrowed it from the recovery community. It's not original to me. And it's known as the three A's, awareness, acceptance, and action. And the first step in anything, you know, most of us, we get awareness of something like we start to feel some kind of way or we see a certain pattern and we immediately want to jump into action. Well, when we do that, we skip over the whole part of acceptance, which is why when we go straight from action or awareness to action, our results are not long lasting. And so the first step in any of this is to be aware of, oh, so this is a thing, first of all, right? And that's what this podcast is doing. This episode is letting our listeners know that this is totally a thing. 
And if you start to feel yourself going there, this is where that awareness of your body or what's coming up for you, what you're noticing, how you want to react, how you want to respond, what signals your nervous system's giving you, all of that is a part of the awareness process. And then we have to sit in the really, really uncomfortable acceptance process. And for the longest time, I hated that word and every definition I looked up of it reiterated why I hated that word. <laughs> and it, I hate it because it says it means that it's okay, right? Like it's, it's okay, whatever happened. And one day while frustrated at all the definitions, I finally found the antonym for acceptance, which is rejection. And when I saw the antonym that the opposite of acceptance is rejection, all of a sudden it clicked to me because one of our biggest problems is that we keep trying to reject who we are, who others are, how we show up, how others are showing up. Like we are constantly rejecting the reality of what is, which means we are not in acceptance of what is, which means when you want to jump straight from an awareness to an action, you have not accepted yet that this is a part of the reality. Like you're still rejecting the fact that this is a part of, of the reality. And as long as you're rejecting that this is a part of the reality, you cannot make lasting change. Like you can take actions all you want. You're going to circle back around to that same toxic bad boy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and so the process of acceptance doesn't mean that it's okay. Right. But it just means, oh, this is what I do. Okay. This is what the system has taught me. This is what my nervous system has been programmed to do. Okay. And really just being with it and loving yourself through it. And loving your parents through it and your grandparents and their, their parents, right? Because it was really none of their faults. Like this is a systemic thing. Like it is the entity that we live and breathe because it is so, it permeates everything, right? And so it's not any of their faults, but when we can sit with ourselves and no longer reject that this is what we do. And when we can do it with so much love and compassion for ourselves and those who came before us, then naturally what ends up happening is the action falls out of that. Like you will automatically know what needs to be done. And that's when, you know, a part of that um, middle A, that uh, acceptance A is where you start to get more in relationship with your body, your nervous system, what signals is it giving you? And then you see something that doesn't feel right and you know to tune in and then you know like, oh, this doesn't feel right because this is different and new to my nervous system. Or, oh, this doesn't feel right because this person truly is not right for me. Like they truly are a toxic person and I'm not here to mother nobody into being a better, <laughs> you know, a better boy. Mm -hmm. Right. right. Mm -hmm. And so you get that gift of discernment. And with that gift of discernment, you know exactly what action to take. That's awesome. Thank All right. You. So we've got awareness, we've got acceptance, and we've got action. Yes. So and you my... cannot skip over the acceptance. Yes. That's very true because if you don't accept it, I don't know where we're going from there. <laughs> <laughs> accept that there is a problem. Yes. <laughs> okay. So then my last question for you is what advice would you give to our sisters out there 
regarding supremacy and relationships. I would like them to know that it's not you. It's not you. This is simply the way the system was designed. And when you know that, it can help inform every other action that you take and every feeling, thought, and belief you have about yourself and those with whom you're in relationship with. And there it is. Sharani, thank you so (laughs) much for this different perspective on relationships that I never even thought about. So I am so excited that I had a chance to kind of hear your platform and hear all about who you were last year and that we've had the chance to connect this year on this year platform. Yes. Thank you so much for having me. It's been an honor and a gift. And I hope I didn't fire hose our listeners too much because, you know, I get in the zone and, and it just pours out of me. It was awesome. It was awesome. (laughs) Thank you. Did Sharani not blow the lid off this thing? Like I said, in the very beginning, she said, it's not us. This is the way that the system was designed. And so once we know that it will help inform us for the actions that we need to take later. I had never heard of this perspective about relationships related to supremacy, but I don't know. Could you resonate with it? Could you resonate with some of the things that she was saying? If you could, I would definitely love to hear your response. In you can either leave it in the review or just like send me a message on Instagram because I am curious to know really what you all thought about this episode and a different perspective of it. But let me give you some more information about Sharani, all right? Sharani Empathic is the founder of Fierce Authenticity Movement, where humans all over the world are learning how to lead from their humanity by recovering from the perfectionism, imposter syndrome, judgment, criticism, and not enoughs we've been conditioned to believe living under systems of supremacy. Sharani's work illuminates how these are the ways we've been affected, not by 500 years of supremacy culture, but 5,500 years of supremacy since the fall of ancient summer. Her goal is to help us heal from the pain and trauma of supremacy culture so that we can live in a world based on love, not fear. With over 15 years of experience in the mental health field, Sharani is trained in trauma interpersonal neurobiology, our nervous system responses, and relationship patterns. She uses her superpower of seeing interpersonal relational patterns to help people break free from the conditioning and internalized supremacy. Sharani's signature framework, Fierce Authenticity, is grounded in psychology, science, and spirituality. The practices of Fierce Authenticity includes heart work, which is getting into right relationships with ourselves and others, and somatic work, which is getting into relationship with our body. Emerging from the practices of heart work and somatic work is a new legacy, a legacy where we are freed from the internalized effects of supremacy, which in turn ripples outward to touch every single person on our planet and create a world without supremacy. Hear ye, ladies and gentlemen, that is Sharani's bio. So you can find her on Instagram. You can also check her out at her website, and I will leave all of that information 
into the show notes so that you can connect with Sharani and just hear more about supremacy relationship patterns. And we talked a little, quite a bit about the nervous system as well. And so how that affects our body too. So sis, I hope that you enjoyed this episode. I hope that you really got some nuggets from this and just know there is no one like you. There is no one out here that can do the things that you do. So show up, let your light shine bright and never dim it for anyone. Until next time, bye. 